0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. So we're going to start tonight with a quick note Uh, before we get into another uh, sort of vaguely quick note in order to keep up with uh, the times. And so this one's a fun one, though, Uh, (laughs) unlike the other one, which is, of course, going to be a COVID update. So I wanted to let you know, in case you didn't yet, uh, that... August is when the Perseid meteor shower peaks, and it's actually going to peak completely on the 12th. And so that's, you know, next week. So you still have some time to figure out how to find a nice place to be able to see some shooting stars. And so there's going to be a new moon on the 8th, and so conditions should be ideal And if you're thinking of waiting next year, it's going to be right around a full moon. And so this year is going to be much better conditions than next year. So again, if you can get out somewhere quiet or quite dark, I should say, in the next few weeks, actually, it doesn't have to be on the 12th, but that's when you'll see the most potentially. Now, uh, the best viewing is obviously past midnight, and it actually goes all the way up until uh, dawn in a lot of North America. So you really should be able to see some great stuff. The Perseids are fragments of the comic Swift Tuttle, which orbits the sun around every 130 years or so. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah if we can manage to get a clear night, uh, at least, (laughs) then we should be able to see some pretty good, uh, meteor action. Uh, that is the only problem because of course our weather has been rather terrible lately. Um, as far as being overcast pretty much all the time. Um, (laughs) I'm not a fan. I, assume that you're probably not a fan either. Um, but unfortunately it is going to apparently be a very wet, very, uh, murky summer. And so, yeah, some of that has, you know, makes me think of climate implications that I don't really want to think about tonight. Let's talk about something else that's really kind of terrible. Uh, Let's talk about the Delta variant for a few moments. I promise we're going to talk about fun things after this. Uh, So remember back at the very beginning of the pandemic when uh, the Boston-based Biogen thought it would be? no big deal to hold an in-person biotech conference in Boston and, you know, ended up creating a massive outbreak that some believe caused up to roughly 1.9% of all cases of COVID or around 330,000 infections worldwide in 2019. And of course, it made it perfectly clear that people needed to stop meeting in person. Well, Massachusetts has done it again. Now, this time, there is less clear-cut blame, uh, at least, so Biogen really should have known better, Uh, and um, I am surprised that uh, there weren't a lot more consequences, but of course, I'm also completely unsurprised that there weren't more consequences. Um, but yeah, so this time, the CDC's recent updated masking guidelines are in large part a response to a spike in cases of delta variant infections stemming from July 4th celebrations in Provincetown, making the CAPE a hotspot for the new variant. Um, and so, yeah, again, we are number one, woo. Um, and so this happened, uh, due to a bunch of people getting together on the fourth or around the fourth, and it has shown that given the right conditions, breakthrough infections, which are of course those that occur in people who have been fully vaccinated, are not nearly as rare as in comparison to infections with earlier variants. And so a new CDC report on this outbreak describes 469 COVID-19 cases in Massachusetts, which were tied to the P-Town outbreak. Now, there are almost 900 total infections, but most, again, were in people from out of town who were in town just for the holiday and have, again, since left. Um, And so for the mass residents, 346 or 74% were fully vaccinated. Now, most of these were among men with an average age of 42. But that demographic is most likely due more to the fact that the events were, quote, marketed to adult male participants and that's just not really diagnostic of any specific demographic risk pool. So, you know, if you're a man and you're 42, uh, you know, it's not saying that you're the most likely to get it. It's just that this particular pool of people who did contract the, um, the infection skewed towards sort of middle-aged men in general. And so about 80% of the cases experienced some form of symptoms with five people being hospitalized. Now, four of the five had been fully vaccinated. Two of the four vaccinated had underlying medical conditions. And importantly, of 133 cases that were analyzed from swab samples, nearly 90% were infected with the Delta variant, and in 211 cases, they found that the viral load was similar to the unvaccinated, as we've noted before that there have been um, some studies of that. High viral loads suggest an increased risk of transmission and raised concern that, unlike with other variants, vaccinated people infected with Delta can transmit the virus, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, said in a statement about the findings, which was released uh, last Friday, so on the 30th. This finding is concerning and was a pivotal discovery leading to CDC's updated mask recommendation. So again, (laughs) Massachusetts is leading the way in the worst possible way. Um, Now, this is all to say, though again, that no one should panic. Out of all of those infections, there were only five hospitalizations. And as far as I know, no deaths. Now, there may have been hospitalizations of people outside of the uh, sample size, because again, this was a split sample size. They only were able to look at the people who still lived in the area um, when they came to investigate. But it's still pretty clear that being fully vaccinated does confer substantial protection against the possibility of death and um, acute disease. And so a lot of people will get mild symptoms, but it really is still the vaccine is very protective. But unfortunately, again, it means that it is indeed a good time to bring back your habit of wearing a mask indoors in places, especially where you have to be in close contact with other people um, or people other than your family. A big takeaway from the CDC reports is that vaccination, while again personally protective to a high degree, is not enough to prevent the continued spread of the Delta variant and that public health measures such as masking, avoiding large public gatherings, especially in high-risk areas or that attract people from a large geographic area, and social distancing are required to quell the outbreak and let the country get back the country and the world to eventually get back to some sort of return to pre-COVID normalcy or some form of new normalcy that is post-COVID. And so, yeah. But before we move on, there is one thing that I really want to talk about, which is booster shots. Right now, there is no good science to suggest that if you have been fully vaccinated, that you need a booster shot. And I want you to really think about that because there are still many people in less developed countries that have not even had the chance to get vaccinated in any way and diverting vaccines to boosters that are not needed is frankly immoral um, in my opinion there's no other way to say it um and so i think the i think the number was uh it was either between, it was either 1% or 10% i think it was only 1% of the world's population has actually been able to get vaccinated fully And so, you know, we think, oh, the U.S. is getting to 70%, so there should still, so there should be plenty available. Well, there are other countries where COVID hasn't, uh, sorry, vaccines haven't even been able to be distributed yet in any real systematic way. And so I think this is really a place where you have to take personal responsibility for being a part of a world community and to really push back against the idea that we should be getting boosters. Um, it may turn out that specific populations need boosters. Um, so, you know, if you have an underlying medical condition, if you are elderly, and if the science says that you should get one, then yes. But for people who are relatively healthy, who don't have an underlying medical condition, who frankly don't see people a lot, so if you don't interact in any way with people for the most part, you don't need a booster. You absolutely do not. And so I've already been horrified by stories of people who have sought out and gotten a third shot. Uh, sometimes not even the same vaccine as they initially received, uh, which the the science on whether or not that's helpful is also completely uh, not solid. So please, please do not try to get a booster shot until the CDC actually re- recommends one. You are actually in the group it's recommending it to and yeah, millions and millions of people No, billions of people, because we have 7 billion people, billions of people still don't have access to a vaccine. And, um, you know, I do think that this is a moral issue and um, I'm already very upset about the fact that, you know... First world countries, quote unquote, uh, are not doing more to really get vaccines created and distributed to um, the underdeveloped world. And so, yeah, that's also a problematic way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, The former colonialized world is frankly a a more uh, descriptive way of saying it, unfortunately, because that's kind of how this happened. Uh, It turns out that when colonists come in and steal all of the things that are natural resources in your country, that sets you up for not being able to develop as quickly as those countries that stole all of your natural resources. (sighs) <sighs> Anyways, um, I promise we're not going to talk about everything being terrible. There's some fun, interesting stories. I promise, I promise, I promise. <laughs> um, because again, we, we do try and keep it positive around here because otherwise, um, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, I read a couple of things that I, um, I'll tell you very briefly because I, you know, um, I did read a skim an article um, and I haven't looked at the data yet. So um, if this is just a off the top of my head, in the back of my mind thing, I skimmed an article about how uh, new research suggests that the Gulf Stream may break down faster than we thought it was going to. And that'd be really, really, really bad. Um, that is catastrophically bad. That is uh, Northern Europe no longer being able to grow food potentially bad um, because they really depend on the warm air coming up from the Gulf Stream that comes across the Atlantic uh, from the Caribbean. And so, yeah. Not a good time, um, but again, I haven't read the the actual paper. I just skimmed an article about the paper, and there's technically still time for us to do things um, anyways, let's talk about the past let's 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 dive into the past because the past is not today, and that is a good thing today <laughs> so let's move. Way back on the timeline and bask in the glories of the past for a while. A newly returned piece of Stonehenge has given researchers an unprecedented window into the stones the monument is constructed from. Now, Stonehenge was constructed during the Neolithic period, with the sarsens erected in two concentric circles around 2500 BCE, along with the smaller blue stones, which were set up between them in a double arc. Now, we actually know a fair amount about the bluestones, which were quarried in Wales and brought to the site. We actually know uh, where that quarry is, and you can, you know, compare the stones from the quarry to the stones that are at the site. But the sandstone sarsens, or silcretes, those have been more enigmatic because it wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't really have a lot of ways to um, be able to test them because it's Stonehenge and it's protected. And so the only, uh, fragments we had were from the 18th century. And so, uh, that's, you know, a little bit hard to know exactly where they came from because in the 18th century, they weren't all that great at, uh, actually, you know, writing down where things came from and stuff. Uh, Archaeology hadn't really, you know, become a science yet. But there had been this other time in which this could have happened. So in the summer of 1958, work on restoring Stonehenge was completed. So it wasn't until 1958 that they actually restored it to what it is today. Um, So a lot of it had fallen into disrepair and things had um been, you know, moved around and stuff. And so they actually recreated it, um, or restored it, I should say. They didn't recreate it because otherwise it would be uh, fully complete. And so during this restoration work, a man named Robert Phillips, who was a representative of the drilling company helping with the restoration, took a cylinder core from Stone 58, one of the upright pillars. When he later moved to the U.S., he took the core with him (laughs) as a souvenir. And so, again, because the monument became protected, no other samples could be extracted from the rocks. And so it wasn't until 2018 that the 42-inch long by 1-inch wide core of sandstone returned to England on the occasion of Philip's 90th birthday and came into the hands of researchers who have now published an analysis of their findings. We have CAT scanned the rock, zapped it with x-rays, looked at it under various microscopes, and analyzed its sedimentology and chemistry, said lead study author David Nash, a professor of physical geography at the University of Brighton in England. With the exception of thin section analyses and a couple of chemical methods, all of the techniques we used in the study were new both to Stonehenge and the study of sarsen stones in the UK. And so Pillar 58 is found in the inner circle uh, to sort of the northwest of the altar stone in the sort of center of the uh, monument. And it turns out it has a chemical makeup representative of 50 of the remaining 52 sarsens on site. So, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing that they were able to get this because it tells them a lot about the majority of the um, rocks on the site, or the sarsens, I should say, the sandstone. Uh, and so, the researchers found that grains in the rock date from between sixty-six million years to one point six billion years old. And they found that the rock is actually ninety-nine point seven percent quartz, and that's that. That was surprising. And it turns out that this quartz has created a cement which which holds fine to medium grains and which has created an interlocking mosaic of crystals, according to Nash. These cements are incredibly strong. I've wondered if the builders of Stonehenge could tell something about the stone properties and not only chose the closest, biggest boulders, but also the ones that were most likely to stand the test of time. So, pretty interesting. Now, there actually are two other cores, a f- another full core, and a fragment of another that remain missing. Now, part of the second core was discovered at the Salisbury Museum in 2019. Adrian Green, the museum's director, told English Heritage, which is the organization that oversees uh, historical places in England, That part of a core from stone 58 was recovered, quote, in a box marked three times or three X stonehenge stones from, quote unquote, treasure box, according to the study. No clue. Nobody has any idea. Um, And of course, only one half of one or one piece of one fragment um, or one piece of one core, I should say, was actually found in that box. (laughs) And so this core fragment was actually also analyzed and reported on, though, again, no one is quite sure how it managed to get into the museum's collection. Uh, So, yeah, (laughs) always a fun time when you find something on a back shelf in the museum. Um, And we're actually going to talk about that again in just a minute. Our next story is about something even more uh, exciting in that respect. But I do love the fact that You know, basically, someone just decided in the 1950s to take a souvenir with them. (sighs) At least we've come a long way in archaeology in many places with many archaeologists. There is still some of that, obviously. Um, There's still some uh, very unscrupulousness that goes on. There's still plenty of uh, pot hunters and... uh, just general terrible people who uh, loot, that's the word I'm looking for, looters of um, ancient sites. But real archaeologists now are very precise and try very hard not to uh, perpetuate the mistakes of the past, shall we say. Okay, we're going to move slightly forward in time and chat about another case of an important history-changing object being found after sitting on a museum shelf. Now, this time, it sat on a museum shelf for more than a 100 years in Istanbul. And this is a fragment of a clay tablet from 3,700 years ago during the old Babylonian period. And it turns out to contain the oldest known example of applied geometry. Now, this is more than a millennium earlier than the birth of Pythagoras, who was once thought to have developed geometry independently. SI-427 dates from the old Babylonian period, which spans 1900 to 1600 BCE. It's the only known example of a cadastral document, from the OB period, which is a plan used by surveyors to define land boundaries. In this case, it tells us legal and geometric details about a field that split after some of it was sold off, notes mathematician Daniel Mansfield of the University of New South Wales, who described the object and which in turn has helped to better understand another fragment of cuneiform. This time, Plimpton Plimpton 322, which Mansfield and colleagues had concluded in 2017 was an early form of trigonometric-like table that listed out a series of Pythagorean triples. And so Pythagorean triples are sets of numbers that fit into the Pythagorean theorem. So that's, if you remember uh, from basic geometry, is a plus, or a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And so this defines how you derive the sides of a right triangle. Now, at the time, there was still some question as to what the list would have been used for, with some thinking it was a teaching tool, while others thought it was a theoretical document, which sought to understand diagonal triples. Now, some thought had been put toward it being a surveying tool, but that was originally disregarded in favor of the more scholarly ideas. With the combination of the two tablets, it is now clear that indeed the Babylonian surveyors used right-angled triangles to help them define rectangles. Now, it's clear it's it's important to be clear that this isn't the same kind of trigonometry as explained by Pythagoras, which was derived from observations of the stars in the second century b c e and is much more theoretical and has a much more um a lot more around it than just, you know, the Pythagorean theorem. There's other parts of the trigonometry that he uh, explained, and that he, um, you know, Um, was able to impart his wisdom of to followers who then you know wrote it down and uh, brought it to us today but it's still very impressive um and it shows how a lot of this stuff even though we have a point where we think it was invented a lot of it sometimes a lot of it seems to have been that you know people were doing it it's just nobody really stopped to think about like the more philosophical part of it. It was more just like, how do we measure the boundaries of a field? (laughs) And so the number of Pythagorean triples that are useful for land management, land measurements by the Babylonian surveyors would have actually been quite small. And this is because the Babylonians used a sexagesimal or base 60 number system, which made it hard to work with prime numbers above 5. This raises a very particular issue. Their unique base 60 number system means that only some Pythagorean shapes can be used, Mansfield said. It seems that the author of Plimpton 322 went through all these Pythagorean shapes to find these useful ones. This deep and highly numerical understanding of the practical use of rectangles earns the name proto-trigonometry, but it is completely different to our modern trigonometry involving sine, cosine, and tangent. But again, this is where SI-427 came in. It makes clear that this list is almost certainly referring to surveying. This is from a period when land is starting to become private People started thinking about land in terms of my land and your land, wanting to establish a proper boundary to have positive neighborly relationships, he said. And this is what this, ta- this tablet immediately says. It's a field being split and new boundaries are made. Now, other tablets have been recovered that speak about property disputes and reference surveyors being sent out to to settle disputes so it would make sure that they would want an accurate way to derive the boundaries of a particular plot of land. And again, Pythagoras won't be relegated to a lesser status anytime soon, but it does once again show the extraordinary knowledge of people, even in deep antiquity. Nobody expected that the Babylonians were using Pythagorean triplets in this way, Mansfeld said. It is more akin to pure mathematics, inspired by the practical problems of the time. So yeah, pretty impressive. And um, though I will say, you know, it's very sad that very impressive thing to do a thing that is actually uh, something that has <laughs> eventually become a pretty uh, fraught uh, field, which is of course, defining what is, uh, what belongs to who, but, uh, that is a purely, uh, philosophical, uh, argument that we are not going to get into tonight. Um, but what we are going to do right now is take a break and we're going to do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to move slightly forward again on the timeline to first the first century BCE. So do stay tuned for that in just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to down-tempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We we'll love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes, and sound sculptures. Art Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. I Heart J Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest. J Rock, J Pop, J Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent. Bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash this is maddie host of planet emo a show that aims to bring you the latest and greatest in emo music from massachusetts and beyond if you ask 10 different people what emo music is you'll get 10 very different answers and my goal is to bring in every one of those perspectives from 80s hardcore to the power pop of today we'll hear it all for your dose of early morning feelings catch planet emo from 6 to 7 a.m every thursday right here on valley free radio For all the best in Americana, check out Roots & More Tuesday morning from 7 to 9. From blues, folk, and rock to Cajun, Zydeco, and alternative country, Roots & More brings you emerging artists, new releases, and older favorites. Tune in Tuesday morning from 7 to 9 on Valley Free Radio. Yes, yes, yes! Tune in to the hottest hip-hop show in the universe! Temperatures rising on WXOJLP, Northampton Valley Free Radio. We air on Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. The hottest hip-hop show in the universe with yours truly, Etuk ADOS. And the ADOS stands for American Descendant of Slavery. And I'm so proud of it. With my mans, James and Tariq, we play the hottest playlist in the universe. Temperatures rising! i the town crying. The Town Crier, my new music and arts and entertainment show, airs Thursday morning from 7 to 9. Every week we update listeners on what's happening in our vibrant communities. We'll talk to gallery owners, brewers, poets, restaurateurs, and more. We'll also take a musical road trip to one of our amazing musical scenes. Tune in from 7 to 9 on Thursday morning. Okay, we are back You are listening to evidence-based radio. And so, as I noted before the break, we are going to start talking about the Egyptians for a minute. Now, it turns out that the Egyptians, while famously known for living in what is now pretty much mostly desert, uh, they actually had some amazing boat building technology. So one of my favorite documentaries ever is when a group of experimental archaeologists designed, built, and then sailed a boat based on a relief sculpture from the time of Egyptians, sorry, Egypt's most famous female pharaoh. And so this new vessel is from later in the timeline of Egypt during the Ptolemaic period. And so in 400 BCE, Thonis or Heraklion, so Thonis was the original Egyptian name and Heraklion was the Ptolemaic name for this city, and both were kind of used interchangeably. This was Egypt's largest port on the Mediterranean Sea. Now today, you probably haven't heard much about it because it lies beneath the Abu-Kir Bay a few miles off the coast of modern-day Alexandria. It was buried for some 2,100 years. And so, um, buried for, sorry, buried for some 2,100 years, a ship was discovered beneath a little over 16 feet of clay, as well as some fragments of an ancient temple to the god Amun in the area that was once Thonis. And so uh, Thonis heracleion flourished between the 500s and 300s BCE. But when Alexander the Great founded Alexandria, less than 20 miles away, the city began to decline. Now, you may know that this region of the Mediterranean is known for being rather seismically active. And so by the 100s BCE, a series of earthquakes and tsunamis had battered the once prominent city. One such earthquake was so severe that it caused the clay the city was built on to liquefy. So um, if you've ever seen a demonstration of liquefaction, it's basically when an earthquake causes a wave form to uh, propagate through Uh, usually a dense kind of clay um, or sand, and it actually turns it almost into a liquid. And so things just fall through it because it's no longer solid, it's liquid. And so much of the city was destroyed, including a cluster of Greek mortuary temples from the 300s, which crumbled into a canal, and the aforementioned Temple of Amun, which collapsed into the channel and buried the Egyptian warship, which must have been uh, moored nearby, beneath the bay. And so the ship was recently found by using a sub-bottom profiler, which is a sonar instrument designed to penetrate beneath the seafloor, much like ground-penetrating radar peers below the topsoil. Now, the area was once a deep channel running through the ancient city, But now it's an even deeper, mud-filled area on the bottom of the bay. Now, the clays were actually very useful for preserving the remains of the ancient warship. The ship is around 82 feet long and around 13.5 feet wide, which means it was clearly built for speed, being, of course, much longer than it is wide. It has been examined by archaeologists from the European Institute for Underwater Archaeology. Finds of fast galleys from this period remain extremely rare, said IEASM archaeologist Frank Gaudio, who led the project. And in fact, this is only the second such ship which has been found from the Ptolemaic period. Uh, The Ptolemaic period, and this is also the time of the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. And so it turns out that the other example is actually a Carthaginian warship from around 2350 uh, BCE. Now, what's really interesting about the ship is that it shows both a it shows a melding of both Greek and Egyptian shipbuilding techniques. So it features mortise and tenon construction that comes from the Greeks. Before this discovery, Hellenistic ships of this type were completely unknown to archaeologists. Archaeologists, Gaudio notes, Our preliminary study shows that the hull of this galley was built in the classical tradition and relied on long, mortise and tenon joints and well-developed internal structure. However, it also contains features of ancient Egyptian construction and allows us to speak of a mixed type of construction some typical ancient Egyptian shipbuilding features together with the evidence for a reuse of wood in the ship indicates that it was built in Egypt. And so it would have been powered by both rowers. And when the wind was right, a substantial sail. And they know this be based on the size of the large mast step. And so the mast step is basically the base that you put the mast into. Um, And so it would have been flat-bottomed and had a long, flat keel. And so, therefore, it was designed for travel in the Nile and Delta regions. So this was definitely meant to be a um, ship that was meant for the Nile. Um, And if you want to see something about a ship that was built more for traveling uh, to other places... I'll try and remember to track down um, a link to the BBC uh, documentary about that other ship, um, because it's, again, it's fantastic. And um, that was actually meant for sailing uh, down the Red Sea. So much more a, a uh, traveling vessel and a merchant vessel uh, of sorts. And so, The city was largely abandoned after that large earthquake, uh, because basically it dropped much of it into the water, but it wasn't fully abandoned until the 700 CE, when sea level rise and further subsidence really fully drowned the city and it faded from the history books, until 1933 when a Royal Air Force pilot flying over the bay looked down and saw ruins beneath the waves. It wasn't actually until 1999, though, that Gaudio and his team relocated the ruins and began to excavate them. So it turns out that only around 5% of the city has thus far been excavated, but the finds from just this small section have been amazing. Greek funerary vessels from that collapsed mortuary temple complex have been recovered in good condition, and this vessel, of course, is a truly unique find. So hopefully more finds will continue to awe archaeologists and tourists alike in the coming years. Okay, let's move forward once more to an archaeology site that is being informed by new technological measurement tools. New research based on accelerated mass spectrometry, a form of carbon dating, shows that the ancient palace complex of Machu Picchu was inhabited at least 20 years before previously believed. Now, I particularly like this study because it is a step towards decolonizing the history of this amazing place. Previous dating of the site was based on narratives from Spanish sources written after the conquest. Machu Picchu is among the most famous archaeological sites in the world, but until now, estimates of its antiquity and the length of its occupation were based on contradictory historical accounts written by Spaniards in the period following the Spanish conquest. Study lead author Richard Berger, an archaeologist and anthropologist at Yale University, said in a statement, now, the team studied the remains of 26 people, presumed to be servants or courtiers, excavated from four cemeteries at Machu Picchu, many of them by Hiram Bingham, also of Yale, and his excavations in 1911 and 1912, which introduced the larger world to the palatial ruins. Of course, as in many, many other examples, The former royal estate was never lost to the local inhabitants, but simply forgotten by Western tradition and science. Now, another thing you'll notice is that I won't call it a city. Despite that having been the original interpretation, researchers now believe that only a few hundred people would have ever lived at the complex and that it was a complex for the Maya elite to basically be able to go on vacation. Um, Actually, it was a place where they could go when Cusco got too cold. Even though it's very high in a mountain uh, pass, it's still apparently warmer there than it is in Cusco during the winter time. Um, And so they note that most residents were probably... Yanacona, specialized laborers who were removed from their home societies and committed to lifelong service to the state, or in this case, Pachacuti's Panaca, the royal dynastic descent group, and Camayac, specialized artisans taken from their homeland and attached to the royal Panaca. Some of the Camayac at Machu Picchu may have been metalworkers brought from the north coast of Peru, notes the paper. Now, the 1912 excavation found 104 burials in caves around the site. Given the multi-ethnic character of the remains, it is assumed that they were retainers rather than royalty and would have reflected people from the various conquered lands who had been brought into the empire. The skeletons showed little sign that these were people who engaged in heavy physical labor and they don't seem to have died of violence. This suggests that they were, again, largely retainers who would have been ethnically diverse and cosmopolitan. And so the grave goods found also support this idea. They include ceramics from the imperial style of the capital, Cusco, but also the provinces, as well as bronze and silver shawl shawl pins and tweezers, along with other typical Inca artifacts. Now, the paper notes that it is significant that Many of the, local, um, the non-local vessels had been broken and repaired in antiquity, and their inclusion in the graves suggests that they were valued heirlooms, perhaps from an ethnic homeland. And what's missing from the site are artifacts from either the pre-Inca or post-Spanish conquest eras, suggesting that the site was only occupied during the time of the Inca leaders. Spanish chronicles say the monumental site was built for the Inca leader Pachacuti around 1438, while he was beginning to expand the empire into nearby regions. Results of the new study suggest that people were already living and being buried there by at least 1420, if not earlier, until it was abandoned in 1530 after the Spanish conquest. This finding pushes back the timeline for when Pachacuti began to expand the empire. Modern radiocarbon methods provide a better foundation for understanding Inca chronology than the contradictory historical records, Berger told Antiquity. Now, the study has larger implications about the trustworthiness of documents written by colonial forces. This recalibration will also force a rethinking of Inca chronology and history, notes Dennis Ogburn, an anthropologist and archaeologist at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, who was not involved in the study. He notes that before the ability to use AMS and other advanced dating techniques, we had little hope of refining the chronology of the Inca Empire because it was such a short-lived phenomena in archaeological terms radiocarbon dates from earlier research did not have the resolution that allows us to fine-tune things like we can now. And so the work of radiocarbon dating the bones and teeth samples are part of a wider project of investigating ancient DNA on osteological samples that were formerly curated at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. I say formally because the remains, known to have come from Machu Picchu, along with other archaeological materials such as grave goods, have actually been repatriated and are now conserved at the Museo Machu Picchu, which is administrated by the Universidad Nacional San Antonio Abad Cusco. So that is quite nice that they have been repatriated. Um, And, you know, we could spend hours talking about Uh, museums and repatriation and, uh, how museums fit into a modern world. Um, I have opinions about that. Uh, not all of them are scientific. Some of them are just deeply, deeply, uh, conflictedly, uh, you know, personal. I both love museums and also completely understand why people would like their cultural goods back. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that tonight because we've only got a few minutes left, and that's a that is an hours long conversation about uh, who has the right to view things and um, all sorts of other things. So uh, we're not going to do that tonight, and instead, we're gonna switch gears completely and We are going to talk, finally, because this is the best story. I was saving the best for last. Um, So, uh, yeah, we're going to switch now, and we're going to talk about giraffes. (laughs) So we've only got a few minutes, so let's get tucked in. Uh, So a new study by scientists from the University of Bristol and published in Mammal Review suggests that giraffe social structure which has been studied just in the last decade, is capable of complex interactions. It is baffling to me that such a large, iconic, and charismatic African species has been understudied for so long— This paper collates all the evidence to suggest that giraffes are actually a highly complex social species with intricate and high-functioning social systems, potentially comparable to elephants, cetaceans, and chimpanzees, said Zoe Muller, a biologist at the University of Bristol and the study's lead author. Now, Muller's team looked at 404 papers on giraffe behavior, paying special attention to the role of females, male dispersal and how and for how long offspring are reared they found that giraffes have a social structure that is on par with other highly intelligent animals especially orcas which are organized among matriarchal lines it turns out that herds are run by the oldest female the estimate that giraffes spend around they estimate that giraffes spend around a third of their life in a post-reproductive state Postmenopausal females remain a part of the group in order to aid in raising offspring. And this can be pretty impressive, as herds can range from just six individuals to almost 50. And so, this phenomenon is called the grandmother hypothesis and has been found in some whales, primates, elephants, and now giraffes. The idea is that it's evolutionary advantageous for the group to have older females that are beyond breeding age remain an important part of the group in order to help with future generations. Giraffes in the study spent up to 30% of their lives in this post-menopausal state, while elephants spent 23% and orcas spent 35%. Recognizing that giraffes have a complex cooperative social system and live in matrilineal societies will further our understanding of their behavioral ecology and conservation needs. If we view giraffes as a highly socially complex species, this also raises their quote-unquote status towards being a more complex and intelligent mammal that is increasingly worthy of protection, Muller said. Basically, Give giraffes some of the cred that elephants get. <laughs> that is the that is the one line of this is that uh, giraffes are just as awesome as elephants, um, and I think obviously there's an argument to be made clearly that all animals deserve conservation. Um, but obviously we like the pretty and smart ones the best. Um, so <laughs> uh, let, let's let's lay our cards on the table here. So um, I actually got to see giraffes um, last year. Um, I think right before the pandemic hit, um, my boyfriend and I went to, um, I can't remember what zoo. It was in uh, Rhode Island, I think. Uh, I think it was the, the um, it was the zoo in Rhode Island <laughs> and we saw giraffes and they were amazing. I just like spent like 20 minutes watching giraffes. They're so just majestic. They just are. I mean, they're weird, but they're also just majestic and um, just, I totally can see, it, it makes, it totally doesn't surprise me that they have complex social interactions after having just watched a couple of them at a zoo um so yeah uh giraffes are awesome uh they're also in trouble so um yeah i'll just i'll just tell you that that giraffes are not doing great necessarily uh they are again much like elephants in that respect and so yeah um Think about the giraffes next time you're uh, thinking about something that you might like to help. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm just rambling now. It is time for me to stop rambling. In fact, have a good night. Evidence-based radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.